And uh, just by way of putting us all in the mood to explore suffering, I have uh, this poem that I'd like to read by Joyce Wellwood. It's called The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or, if we haven't truly noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like human ripe beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop stop making deals for safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Just by way of an experiment, as you sit, you might consider trying something which is to resolve not to move. When we resist the impulse to move and make minor adjustments or to keep ourselves a little entertained, for instance, it allows us to bring um, more precise attention to that impulse itself, that constant restless urge to try to make things just a bit more to our liking. Of course, if you have to move, then, then do move. But it's a, uh, an interesting support for our attentiveness.
right, anybody injured by that? Uh, yeah, so good morning. I'm really happy to see everybody. And really happy to see anything at all. <laughs> you know? Um, when I wake in the morning, I, I have a little reflection that I borrowed from Bill and Susan Morgan, which is to remind myself of the small miracle associated with just waking up again, which is often hard because in the morning I'm not at my most cheerful, upbeat self. And reminded then that to be alive is the experience of the creaky back pain and the sluggishness and you know all of the accumulated whatever from, from the night. So um, I notice a lot of you are not sitting in the same seats as you were yesterday. So if you're sitting next to anybody you have not yet met, would you introduce yourselves again? that sitting <laughs> that'll be a popular item <laughs> so, yeah so I'm just gonna like dive in because um, I don't know what else to do um, so talking about how we understand suffering when it is a medical right we have pretty good evidence of what's wrong you know, we have x-rays and CAT scans and blood tests, and there's objective evidence. But once we get into the realm of the medical, it becomes a free-for-all because there are no uh, very clearly identifiable objective reference that we can hang our, our explanations on. So we're free to make up all manner of interesting explanations. And indeed, um, the range of explanations, if you look cross-culturally, they're, um, they're really wide. And generally speaking, uh, they will draw on metaphors that are tied to the technology of the day. You know, when we try to understand mind, popular metaphors now are um, 
or they were recently uh, using kind of computer uh, concepts, you know, of memory banks and inputs and outputs. A lot of this is now given over to looking at uh, the brain and how the brain functions, but even this remains somewhat metaphorical, you know. But anyway, um, so I want to talk a little bit about some examples of how we understand, um, how we describe mental suffering uh, here in this culture. Okay, so how do we get this into the right mode? Um, anybody know how to do this? Because it should just be the slide. It, it actually was showing that way on the computer. Presenter view, custom. Isn't it down here too? No. See, it does it here, but not there. Um, see, that's not what's showing on the computer. Okay, well, I could just decide that it's not my problem. <laughs> Okay, that's. I don't know why. Okay, I don't know why either. Um, okay, well, anyway, this this is just. Um, it's on your handouts, which are kind of hard to read as well. These, there's nothing. This is just my thrown together collection of various ways that, as a clinician, we might think about, or the explanations that we might hear about why somebody suffers. I think these are kind of fun. I collect explanations of suffering, um, so I'll just I'll just go through these. One of them is. The, that suffering is the exp, the expression. Pardon me. Oh, you got it. What'd you do? Press the button. You press the button. <laughs> Note to self. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, the expression of underregulated destructive instinctual drives. Right. This comes out of analytic theory. And it was a very compelling idea. We don't tend to think much about drive uh, theory anymore, but uh, it was pretty popular and and for various reasons, I think, is a kind of a cool thing to contemplate. But that aside, maybe we're suffering because of recovered memory, you know, some kind of previously repressed traumatic experience. This is really popular now. I don't know if you've noticed how much trauma is invoked almost synonymously with any kind of suffering. Um, maybe we're suffering because we have suffered inadequate caregiving, provided by parents who were themselves lost to their own personal neurotic preoccupations. Right? I mean, this makes sense to me. I'm not suggesting any of these are false. These are just various ways that, you know, things that we invoke. And, you know, we may know this from our own experience, parents being fundamentally, you know, humans and people above all else. Overly strict parenting, overly lax parenting, smothering parenting, um, Conditional parental love, this idea that we are only somehow acceptable to our parents if we behave in certain ways and thereby becoming somewhat um, only conditionally accepting of ourselves as well. 
the failure of mirroring by parenting. Um, another analytic view is the, the father's intolerance of a son's Oedipal strivings. Right? Um, maybe we understand that a person is suffering simply because the challenges of their lives exceed their available resources to cope or meet with them. Um, certainly occupational, economic, and situational stresses, all of which, by the way, may be very real. I'm not suggesting, even though these are all, in a sense, metaphorical, it doesn't mean that they're false. Um, developmental arrest, popular view of how we understand somebody's um, distress. Chemical imbalance, low self-esteem, toxic introjects, and disrupted inner objects. I mean, a lot. That's a bit of a jargon, uh, jargony way of that comes out of analytic thinking. Anyway, all of these ref, uh, rely ultimately on a kind of an inference or an interpretation, or on shared assumptions about how the mind works. And because they can't be tied to objective reference, they're ultimately all metaphorical, even if we consider them to be accurate. And we're all invoking these things all of the time, right? We're all kind of developing accounts for, for why is this happening to me? You know, I mean, I, I will distract myself again. I, I think about the experience of anxiety, um, a, a universal experience. When we are anxious, right, anxiety, is, as you know, is physiologically indistinguishable from fear, fear which helps to prepare us for fight, flight, or freeze. But anxiety is not the presence of danger, but really the anticipation of danger. And it leaves us prepared for fight, flight, or freeze when there is nothing in particular that we can identify as the actual danger. So suddenly we're left in this place where there feels as though something is going to go dreadfully wrong if we don't act, and we don't know what is to be done because there is no truck bearing down on us. You know, there's no grizzly bear on the attack. So the mind insists then on, yeah. Absolutely true. I, I completely agree with you, and I can amend the list. I do this in part because um, here in this society, we tend to think in those terms of individuals, as though it's an individual responsibility to overcome suffering. And I think there is growing uh, recognition of the degree to which social uh, injustice is a cause of distress that is a mental health issue, you know, and not just a policy issue. Anyway, I agree with you completely, and I can write something in there as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was talking about anxiety. 
So when we're anxious, the first thing that happens is, why am I anxious? You know? And the mind struggles to find some kind of an account because, again, without an account, it's worse. But the moment that we can identify an ostensible cause, we bind our anxiety just a little bit. You know? It may be wrong, but we feel better having found a cause. Um, anxiety is a, a little bit like, um, I think about it being a railroad lantern, you know, one of those lanterns that, that casts light 360 degrees, and everything can get cast in that light, but what we really want to do is kind of focus on something like a, a narrow beam so that we know what it's about. But very often, uh, all we're doing is we're scanning our environment and trying to come up with something, a tangible explanation. Um, but what we really know is simply that there is anxiety. Um, anyway, back to the notes. Um, so one of the efforts in uh, certainly formal medicine or in psychiatry has been to try to um, make the accounts more objective or more scientific in nature. And one of those efforts has been to try to tie suffering to some kind of a biological or a somatic cause, right? to try to tie it to what's happening in the body. Um, and this, uh, among other reasons, is it legitimizes uh, psychiatry as a kind of a medical profession. Uh, psychiatry has, uh, especially during the years when psychoanalytic thinking was in the ascendancy, was pretty much uh, judged harshly by the rest of medicine as being unscientific. But there's always been a thread uh, of trying to tie mental suffering to some kind of identifiable somatic cause, which also then offers, again, the promise that maybe we're going to find something to do about it, you know, in the form of somatic treatments. And indeed, you look at the history of our efforts to, uh, to treat severe mental suffering uh, through somatic treatments, and they include all manner of interesting Interventions like blistering, wet packs, purging, anemetics, ECT, lobotomies, surgical removal of organs for, for psychiatric reasons, medication. Um, people for a while were being injected with um, blood infected with malaria because, in fact, uh, people seem to have relief from their psychiatric symptoms after a bout with malaria or high fever. Um, after typhoid, it was recognized that often people's psychiatric symptoms would subside, you know, pointing the way to other kinds of somatic interventions. A drug called metrazole was used to induce seizures. Um, people were induced into insulin shock or ECT to create seizures, again, because to some degree there was some symptomatic relief to be found. So, but the promise of finding some kind of somatic causes of extreme mental suffering, um, you know, that enterprise continues, and the promise is held out, but it really has not particularly developed on that promise. And in fact, as soon as we actually find the somatic basis of some kind of um, ostensibly psychiatric disorder, it has a way of getting moved out of medicine, or excuse me, out of psychiatry and into somatic medicine. For example, um, Autism, right? This was once regarded as psychogenic. And like everything else, we knew who was to blame, right? It was the mother. 
well, we now understand, of course, something. And so now it's really moved much more into neurology or even um, epilepsy before it was understood. Um, this was regarded as belonging within psychiatry, and it's now understood to be a neurological condition. Um, you know, our understanding is pretty, pretty limited. Um, for example, um, depression. You know, that we know that it's associated with, uh, you know, with, with particular... Um, you know, antecedent uh, neurochemical transmitters, but we don't really understand why. One of the theories, of course, has to do with serotonin, and because serotonin, selective serotonin uptake inhibitors seem to work for many people with depression, we now then infer that depression is really related to serotonin, which is a bit like saying that the reason why people have headaches is because they have a, a shortage of aspirin in their bloodstreams. Yeah. Thank you. This is kind of where I'm headed. You know? Sorry. No, no. On the on the contrary, thank you. It's it, it, it's wonderful. Um, oh, actually, I want to make reference to this. If those of any of you are interested in these matters, this is a book by Anne Harrington. Anne Harrington is a historian of science at Harvard University. And this book is called Mind Fixers: Psychiatry's Troubled Search for the Biology of Mental Illness. And indeed, even in recent years, I've heard a lot of uh, breathless excitement that we're going to be able, uh, through better brain imaging techniques, to identify exactly the parts of the brain implicated in particular disorders and then have targeted treatments. And it just hasn't happened yet, you know? But anyway, um, this is a really readable book that talks about, you know, the history of psychiatry's effort to try to tie mental illness and suffering to a biological basis, and it's uh, kind of littered with all manner of failures. But, you know, one of the important things here is that all of these weird somatic treatments, they all follow from reasonable efforts to create a theory about what's wrong. You know, when you do wet packs or camisols or insulin shock, it's all based on certain kinds of theories about, indeed, what is going on. 
and it follows naturally. Um, the problem is that many of these things are ultimately not really tied to, uh, again, they're, they're inventions uh, in the empty space of um, psychological hypotheses, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, yeah. Well, one of the major shifts in this, at least for a while, came with Freud, right? Freud was really trying to bridge what he saw as the uh, psychogenic origin of illness and somatic conditions. You know, some of his earliest analytic patients were people who had somatic problems, like hysterical blindness or hysterical paralysis. And having found no somatic basis for it, he was actually looking to find the basis of these disorders in, um, in the psyche. And so this was a really interesting um, effort to try to, um, to bridge this gap between the somatic and the purely psychological. Um, so let's talk about non-medical explanations. Uh, one of those sort of formal, codified ways of understanding suffering that's available to us comes in particular from religious traditions. And, um, oh my goodness, these are just delicious, many of these things. And these are going to be familiar to you. So we suffer. Why? Because we lack faith. In, an, in some respects, this is a kind of a cornerstone assumption of much of Christianity. Right? Um, that we suffer because we are being punished for sin. Again, this should be pretty familiar. That sin might either be uh, our original sin, or it might be some kind of personal acts of omission or commission. Um, because we've chosen evil over good, or we suffer because we have failed to cultivate virtue. Um, maybe others have sinned and we live in a fallen world. You know, so that we're all suffering because of the sins of Adam and Eve, for instance. You know, what, what was their punishment you know, for having tasted the forbidden fruit? Expulsion, right? Which, and what did that look like? Well, I, I think according to the Bible, Painful childbirth, having to work for, for a living, you know, work for food, shame. But what's interesting about this is that those sins were committed long ago, and even if we should somehow profess faith and to cultivate virtue, those punishments oddly have remained. You know, we've never quite overcome those particular punishments. Um, I like this one, that suffering is education or training in virtue. In other words, that it is given to us in order for us to begin to grow. You know, that's a diabolical plan as far as I'm concerned, but it, it makes some sense. And it also accords to some degree um, with the Buddhist model, which is not that we've been deliberately given suffering by some creator in order to give us the chance to, to grow, but rather uh, without our suffering we would have no incentive, you know, to grow. Um, Thomas Aquinas, um, who said, I guess wrote that hallucinations and insanity are due to demons and supernatural influences. Um, not so popular these days, but it has not gone away entirely either. Um, God has caused us to suffer because without it, we would not learn obedience to God. I don't even want to think about what vision of God this implies, right? 
you know, what is it that God needs from us that he, he is demanding obedience and because we fail in this way, uh, he's going to make us suffer. Um, we suffer in this life so that we will long for eternity or for release from the cycles of rebirth. You know? Again, all of this is sort of teleological. I mean, it all suggests that this is based on some kind of a, of a design or a plan. As a test for entry into the afterlife, you know. Um, I had a friend who once uh, raised for me the specter that what if, what if the hellfire and brimstone people are actually right? And that my smug rejection of that is actually foolish when they are doing everything in their power to awaken us to the truth of this. I, I only hope that's not true. Um, suffering is God's effort to recognize him, to appreciate his sovereignty. Uh, again, what does this say about God who's kind of needy for attention? <laughs> I don't know. Um, that like pain, it is a signal to redirect our attention um, and our action. And what I put here is, uh, this is sort of akin to a, um, the beneficial aspect of certain forms of inner distress, hiri and otapi, which are, you know, roughly speaking, descriptions of guilt and shame. And those are actually, even though they are um, painful and unpleasant experiences, in the Buddhist view, they're, they're regarded as relatively wholesome emotions because they allow us to redirect our conduct into a, in a wholesome direction. And suffering for uh, punishment uh, for conduct in a former life. You know, um, in some circles, this might be described a bit erroneously as karma, uh, which is an interesting use and definition of the term karma. In, In sort of New Age parlance, I think what this means is that everything happens for a reason, you know? that I'm being rewarded or I'm being punished for a past life action. I don't know what it was. Who knows what it is, but that at least has a way of explaining it. And this is one of the more um, uh, misused... What? No, that's not what I want to say. One of the things that I have found a bit odd, particularly in those lines of Buddhism that um, adhere to the notion of continual rebirth you know, across lifetimes, is that if we're born into difficult circumstances, it's because of karma in a previous life. Yeah, I don't know. But karma then, uh, in this way, is used to explain individual differences in health, individual differences in longevity, genetic endowment, talent, the speed of our spiritual progress, or whether we've been um, fortunately um, born to a, a family with favorable circumstances when otherwise it would seem kind of random and uh, by chance alone. Anyway, when we begin to look at um, the history of major, more major mental illness, that worked. Um, There have been a couple of uh, threads that have endured through history that you can identify. Uh, most of our accounts have a way of rolling up into one of a few specific explanations. One of them is this idea that something from without has landed within us and is causing the difficulty. This is a sort of infectious view. But it would also include a potentially um, possession, right? something from outside. A second is the whole notion that we are suffering because of moral weakness. You know, again, maybe this is the notion that we have 
failed in our faith, you know, or to be obedient to God, but that it is that the basis of our suffering is fundamentally moral in nature, not biological. Another is um, the notion of injury, which you don't see so much in the religious accounts, or a general sense of um, imbalance. We certainly see this in modern medicine, where there's a notion of there being a in, gener- in common parlance, a chemical imbalance in the brain. But, you know, his, uh, this whole notion of an imbalance has a lot of um, good history to it as well. Uh, it may have origina- originated with Hippocrates um, and was popular in the Renaissance. You can see this in Shakespeare, the whole humor theory, you know, about the humors, you know, where we have, um, there's the sanguine type, which is associated with the humor of blood. And it's associated with a personal type that is happy and generous, or on the negative side, being irresponsible. An excess of yellow bile leads to the choleric. I don't know if I'm saying that word right. Um, From the spleen. And the the choleric type is violent and vengeful and short-tempered. The phlegmatic type, which is associated, of course, with our favorite humor, phlegm. And those individuals will tend to be sluggish and pallid and cowardly. And the melancholic, which is associated with black bile. And the melancholic is introspective and sentimental and probably inclines more toward um, depression. So this is the whole notion that if we're suffering, it's because of this imbalance of one thing or another, in this case of these humors. And we can find all of these things, the notion of moral weakness or of an infectious cause or of uh, imbalances um, carried forward into our current way of understanding suffering. A lot of these are formal and shared within communities and can be found in various traditions. And then, so all of these are kind of formal, whether or not they're particularly possible. And then we can move to those that are called, that we might say are idiosyncratic, the individually crafted ones, the ones that we invent in the privacy of our own minds and imaginations. Um, and um, for some reason I can't advance slides with this. Okay. You know, so in the absence of a good formal explanation, people will invent their own. And again, there's nothing sacrosanct about this, this list, that I'm worthless, I'm suffering because I'm worthless, or I'm unlovable, or I'm lazy, or I'm stupid, you know, otherwise a bad person. Um, I've made bad decisions in the past. This is why I'm suffering. Um, I threw up the example, maybe I'm being punished because I had an abortion, or I didn't get into an Ivy League school, or into OCS candidacy for the military or, you know, we've some sense of um, a moment in time that has defined our current suffering. Certainly the notion that we suffer because of what we're missing, some particular qualities or virtues. You know, if I were smarter, if I were more energetic, if I worked harder, if I had more youth, power, if I were more attractive, you know, um, the sense of lack or the failure you know, if I had my act together. I, I put in here, generally fucked up. I'm not quite sure. That just covers everything else, I suppose. Yeah. 
or I'm like this because there's something I'm just not seeing about myself. Right? I actually hear this a lot. What am I not seeing? The assumption being that if I could see more, maybe I wouldn't need to be uh, so victimized by my own unhappiness. Anyway, once we've arrived at some kind of an explanation, some kind of um, a, a diagnosis, what follows then naturally is some assumptions about what's to be done about it. You know, we can call this in, in the formal domain, we can call it treatment. Um, so if we, if we consider sort of that earlier explanation about um, something infectious or moral weakness, for instance, um, these all lead naturally to certain kinds of treatments. So if, if the problem is, for instance, possession, what's the treatment? Exorcism, yeah, right. If, on the other hand, um, okay, or another thing that one might do is to drive the person out of the community, to exile people, or maybe um, some kind of um, effort to rid oneself of whatever it is that has infected us. So I don't know if you can see this. Um, I went to um, this church in Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, rather, where it's it's a oh god what's the term for a place where they collect bones? Asir, thank you. This is a whole church decorated in countless human skeletons, chandeliers and uh, pyramids, and it's really bizarre. Um, but among the things that I saw there was this skull that had a um, a hole drilled in it. Um, and this, this is likely evidence of what was called trepanation, which is if you've got uh, some kind of possession or something has found its home in you, you need to make a hole for it to escape. Right? And this is still practiced in some places. And indeed, sometimes people who are delusional will, um, will drill holes in their own brain for exactly this purpose. It follows, right? It follows naturally from the explanation that we may offer ourselves that the reason we're suffering is because there's something bad in there that needs to get out. Um, Now, if the explanation that we're giving um, ourselves is that we are suffering because of moral weakness, right? A broken covenant with God or a broken covenant with the spirit world, um, then what do we do? What's the natural response? To which I hear you collectively thinking, but too shy to say, punishment. Right? If someone has behaved poorly, then the treatment or the response is to um, punish them. Or if it's really severe, let's say in the example of witchcraft, maybe execution. Right? Um, if it's something somatic, you know, we have a lot more options, some of which are far less dangerous, things like providing medication, but also uh, somatic treatments like bloodletting or readjusting the humors, you know. Um, and you see this in forms of aromatherapy, moistening treatments, drying treatments, and so on. You know, there's a, a long history of these things. Now, these don't all rest on the notion of mental suffering as an illness. Uh, that whole notion, the whole concept of mental suffering as somehow an illness, was a product of um, that post-enlightenment thinking. 
And there was an entire movement, and those of you who have social work training are probably trained well in this, in what was called the entire moral treatment movement. Um, we take for granted now that extreme mental suffering should be a treatable condition, but there was a time that it wasn't really viewed this way. Um, it was Pinel who rejected the idea, first of all, that madness was incurable, that maybe it should be something that could be treatable. And there were advocates, particularly in the 18th century in England, who advocated for treatment. Um, it came to be known as moral treatment. Um, and in this case, moral is more akin to the word morale, which is to say that it was addressing issues of people's um, emotions and self-esteem. It didn't really mean right or wrong. But the whole notion was that mental suffering, rather than being a cause of fear or a reason for expulsion, should be something that should be studied and should be, in principle, treated. So there was a real shift to a kind of a humanistic view of other sufferings. Now, one of the people who had, um, is credited with the entire movement toward this moral treatment was Pinel. And his treatments uh, were certainly motivated by a wish to be effective, but they were often um, somatic treatments, and they were often terribly cruel as well driven by a wish to rid people of the suffering, but they weren't things that right now we would ever consider to be um, kind or, or even helpful. Um, before the time of the moral treatment movement, pre-industrial people would regard their fate fatalistically as though it was the will of God. You know, Maybe you'd have very low expectations if you're born a peasant and your job is to be working for the, uh, the landed gentry. I don't know. Um, but gradually this was replaced on, by the notion of conscious problem-solving and human intervention. So historically this is interesting. Hu suffering was maybe formally regarded as something that was our fate, and suddenly there's this shift into maybe this is something that actually needs attention and is workable. You know? And how do we do this? So we moved away from the whole notion of punishment or simple confinement, toward the whole idea, for instance, of asylum. Um, now, asylum was originally only available basically to rich people. Poor people went to the almshouses, where there was very little in the way of any intent to treat. Um, but the whole notion here was there was an effort to, first of all, understand extreme mental suffering by studying it, right? and then based on the theorizing to come up with suitable treatments. And the interventions, the early interventions, which followed from the theorizing of the day were, um, were still pretty primitive, and they, they included the things that I mentioned, like blistering and bloodletting. And you can actually find online this, um, some extraordinary treatments. One of them, I don't know who came up with this, but it would put patients into an enormous centrifuge and spin the crap out of them. <laughs> You know? A lot of these were um, all natural responses to the particular hypotheses people were holding about why we suffer. Um, they tended to be pretty ineffectual, but at least the intent was to root the treatment in some kind of observation and theorizing about what was wrong. Um, anyway, this was progress, I think because it really replaced 
metaphysical or moral explanations with something that was more empirical, with the intent to treat, the intent to alleviate suffering, and uh, setting aside morality in service of empirical assessment. Um, So I have a note here, I don't know what I mean. Later, even with the moral treatment in asylums, the moral causes were still identified. Okay, which is to say that even for those people who were in asylums, you know, the, some of the identified causes had to do with people's conduct, with their behavior. So for instance, uh, one hypothesis, hypothesis was that mental illness was related to masturbation, for instance, alcohol abuse, uh, or excessive sins you know, like excessive pride or so on, ambition. Um, we still, even in our own era, we've kind of seen a shift away from this sort of moral accounts toward uh, something a little bit more um, ethically neutral. Uh, I use the example here of um, homosexuality, right, which was... Um, regarded fundamentally as a sin, and then it became regarded in DSM as uh, a disorder, and that was in 1952. It was a mental disorder that needed to be treated. And then in 1973, it was finally removed as a diagnosis, except insofar it was, as it was an object of um, treatment, which is to say that homosexuality wasn't a disease per se, unless it deserved treatment because it was egodystonic, which is to say somebody didn't want it to be so, and then they might enter treatment. But, you know, you look at the history of any number of diagnoses, and, um, and you can see that they've moved from moral to objective to being taken out of the notion of disorders entirely, which to me says so much about how what we understand to be an illness in the mental domain is very much a social construct. You know, not entirely, but to a, to a large degree, we see uh, how diseases come and go. And there are all manner of contributors to this, you know. Um, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. But our intent, you know, continues to be scientific by viewing mental illness or suffering as something akin to uh, somatic illness. And so we wind up seeing suffering as a, as a medical disorder. Um, some of you have heard me harp on this before. And I think we so take this for granted that if I'm suffering, something is wrong with me, and therefore I need treatment. And this has implications. And I don't know that it's wrong, but it's also, um, again, a bit of a metaphor to consider our mental suffering as akin to a kind of a, of a disorder that is amenable to treatment. So we analogize mental health to physical health and well-being to be having an injury-free body. And so we understand wellness mostly as the absence of some kind of a disorder. And we regard suffering here as a symptom of an underlying condition. Right? Again, those of us who are we're trained in mental health, we, this was kind of drilled into us. One of the ways that we would approach our work is if someone is really suffering, you more or less try to understand what their symptoms are, and from this then you infer backwards into a kind of a diagnosis, and that diagnosis would then guide what you do. So this is all kind of borrowed very much from medicine. 
Um, where there is health, there is little or no suffering, and therefore we're treating, the, the purpose then of treatment is to treat the underlying disorder with the idea that if we're successful, the symptom will disappear. You know, like treating an infection. And failing that, we can try to treat the symptoms. You know, something is pretty intractable. So this medical view of, of mental suffering, I think seems pretty accurate when we are using it to describe major mental illness. Um, there's something very disease-like when you work with someone who is uh, psychotic, for instance, or a major depression. You know, these things have the feel of something, um, what can I say, I, I guess disease-like. Um, now, the way these things are expressed cross-culturally is not consistent, but you do see similar levels of prevalence of many of these major mental disorders across cultures, even if they wind up being expressed or understood differently. So there's reason to think that many of these disorders are legitimately considered as medical. And so that medicalization, understanding mental illness as a medical condition, is um, a vast improvement over the tendency to judge people for moral weakness, for instance. Um, and there's increasing acceptance of the biologically based conditions, even when we don't have good evidence for it. You know, we, how do I want scratch that? There's a certain conviction that in time we're going to be able to track, to, to tie all mental suffering and disorders to somatic causes. And indeed, I, I think about the uh, National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, which uh, I don't know if this is still their, their slogan, but they talked about mental illness as a, as a no-fault brain disorder, which was really essential to begin to overcome the stigma that was associated with um, the way in which we blamed all mental illness on bad parenting. Um, so I think it was a really good corrective. Sadly, it does kind of ignore the, the degree to which, in fact, we can make each other crazy, right? Mm -hmm. There is bad parenting, and it can really mess people up. So, um, so let's say we can array human suffering along this imaginary uh, continuum. And so way over here, we've got those conditions that are pretty clearly disease-like, you know, like major depression, like bipolar disease, schizophrenia, and so on. Um, and then over here, we've got what we can call just ordinary human unhappiness, the suffering that anybody endures by virtue of being a human. Now, in the middle, there are all manner of conditions that are not terribly persuasively like diseases. And in fact, if you look at DSM, does everybody know what DSM is? Okay. Um, you can see that it, it talks about disorders, and these disorders are not precisely diseases because they're not easily classified or categorized. Rather, they tend to be identified by clusters of symptoms, by consensus statements, or by reports of subjective distress. But they don't have clear boundaries around them. It's, you, know, it's, you have a list of uh, symptoms, and you're going to choose six out of ten, and you, know, you score. You, know, you, you qualify for the disorder. Um, but we do tend, 
uh, increasingly to regard everything at this end of the scale as still being somehow medical. You know, so that, for instance, um, what used to be um, young boyish behavior now becomes ADD. You know, or somebody being somehow socially inept now is on the spectrum. Um, Exactly. And I just, I don't think anybody, I've never heard, well, you know, except why I'm here because of Buddhism, but to be human is to have unhappiness, and it looks like there's, you know, we have what we don't want, we don't have what we want, blah, blah, blah. But I just, you know, I, I'm just stunned when I, when you're saying this, I've never heard anybody say, well, yeah, this is messy, you're struggling, this is hard, and this is important. Yeah. I saw somebody in therapy once who was really upset because he had been booted from his academic job by the chair of the department. And this was a person I would think of as a bit of a, a therapy addict. He had had a lot of treatment before he came to me. And he was really unhappy about having lost his job. And he, you know, he came in with all kinds of hypotheses that this was related to some particular narcissistic disorder he had and so on. And I said, you just lost your job. And he really wanted to go the pathology route. And, and I thought in some respects that, the, that his urgency to do this was digging his pit deeper. And so I was not aligned, and he quit. You know, because he... Because, so this, yeah, no. So in this culture, do we see unhappiness? I mean, what in this particular culture is the idea that unhappiness is something wrong? Yeah, this is my argument. This is so much the prevalent metaphor and way that we tend to understand unhappiness that we treat it as a treatable disorder rather than perhaps what it may be. Now, it may be treatable, but a lot of our suffering comes from the simple fact of being born as a human being in a world characterized by impermanence. And the best descriptions, I think, or the best formulation of this kind of ordinary human unhappiness, I think, are really coming out of Buddhism. So we're definitely going to get there. Yeah. And, yeah, I don't know. I keep on rushing with this. And, and I just feel like I love that Buddhism does this. And I feel like I've never heard it from outside. Yeah. I don't know if that makes it. Yeah. Within, within any of the models. Well, the, the movement continues to be to medicalize everything. And, you know, it's driven by so many different uh, sources, including advocacy groups looking for more funding, more funding in the schools for more mental health services. You see it by the pharmaceutical companies who suddenly have a niche product to treat a particular disorder. You know, there's a lot of competition to try to see things as, um, as medical, as, as disorders. Now, this is a number of years ago, but I remember reading an article in a, in a journal where someone was making an argument that certain forms of racism should be included in the DSM. And it was a pretty persuasive argument. But um, there is a movement for us to see all suffering as a treatable medical condition. And again, this is, in many respects, progress. You know? 
and in many respects it has unintended consequences, which are not quite so helpful for us. So, um, I don't know if you're going to be able to read this, um, but this is... <clears throat> okay, so this isn't exactly to the point. These... <sighs> okay, you're never going to read this, but I'll be a little selective. So this is a slide of reasons for admission from Weston Hospital in Lewis County, West Virginia, from 1864 to 1889. This is what got people into the hospital. Now, these are not, strictly speaking, all diagnoses, but it gives you an idea about what happens when we start to regard human experience as something abnormal and pathological. So this was compiled by somebody in 1993, and they're pretty interesting. Congestion of brain, uh, constitutional, uh, that it's crime, death of a son in the war, uh, deranged masturbation, desertion by husband, right? Get you hospitalized. Um, dissipation of nerves, disappointment, uh, exposure in quackery, uh, a fall from a horse. Uh, a lot of these things are so clearly somebody's been um, troublesome to their family and they got <coughs> exiled for um, here, seduction and disappointment, religious excitement, remorse, rumor of husband's murder or desertion. These are things that were found in people's medical records. Um, suppression of menses, uh, suppressed masturbation, um, uterine derangement, viscous vices in early life, women trouble. Um, I mean, this is a scream, right? This could get you incarcerated into a mental institution. Um, so fortunately, a lot of this stuff has been removed from legitimate reasons for, yeah. Yeah, but this could just be like precipitating. I don't. Yeah, it's true. If they're just picking from medical records, you know, it doesn't mean they were diagnosing them. Exactly. These are not truly diagnoses, but these were the reasons for admission. A lot of those things, yes, I mean, might end up in a hospital because yeah, no, it's true. And, and, and I need to, need to qualify that these are not. But nevertheless, these things would never fly today. Um, anyway, it tells you something about the use of the hospitals and um, asylums for social control, you know, and not necessarily for treatment. Um, Anyway, back to the previous slide. Um, you, know, you can look at, I don't know if I'm going to, whoops. So over at this end, you know, it used to be that this is the stuff that would get you hospitalized. And as you kind of move in this direction, um, there are more causes for ambulatory treatment. And then increasingly, ordinary human unhappiness drives people to all kinds of self-help, to psychotherapy and other kinds of treatment, you know, things that would never have formally been regarded as, as reasonably medical. So um, here's the history of a number of diagnoses available in DSM. So there are about 112 originally, and most of these were the kinds of things that could get you hospitalized. Uh, it, 
by 1968, it had increased to 163. By 1987, we were at 257. And now it's kind of hard to count because of the way DSM is laid out, but we've got um, about 300, maybe maybe well more. And a lot of these are no longer the kinds of things that would cause someone to be hospitalized. And in fact, in psychiatry, um, originally it was always treating pretty severe conditions. Um, but with the advent of the talking cure, there was more and more uh, demand on psychotherapy and psychoanalysis to treat conditions that were not so debilitated. And indeed, it came to be used as um, a sort of a popular and expected uh, thing for educated people to do, you know, in the, in the 60s and even into the 70s, right? Everybody was getting into analysis uh, whether or not they had treatable conditions, you know. And even now, when it's really good for business, people get into therapy for all manner of reasons which are not even related particularly to symptomatic relief. It's, it has found its way into um, the role of where that might have once been occupied by a confidential conversation with a priest or a rabbi or with a friend, right? It's, it has assumed uh, the role of being a vehicle for personal growth and development and exploration in absence of any particular um, serious complaint, right? You know, all of this is just to kind of make the point that what was once an ordinary human suffering is now a treatable disorder, that we have medicalized all suffering as if it is a symptom telling us of a disorder. And, and, and there's some, you know, real value to this. But anyway, with regard to mental suffering, we really don't have any firm markers. There are no blood tests. There are no um, tissue samples or x-rays. And so we tend to know when something is a problem because of a subjective report of distress. Right? And our definitions of what is a disorder change over time. Um, and it's you know, if you're interested in this stuff, just to look at the history of changing disorders and reports of distress over time, it's really pretty fascinating. I mean, there was a time when, when a really common delusional report was that people had been abducted by the mafia, right? You just don't hear that now. You do hear about abducted by aliens in a way that one never had before. You know, where does this stuff come from? Anyway, so in the middle of that continuum we have conditions that are often in need of treatment, but that are less obviously biological or less obviously disease-like. They may be due to an injury or a trauma, right? Or neglect or catastrophic loss or other events that exceed an, an individual's ability to cope. And they can result in functional impairment and indeed are uh, very legitimate reasons for someone to seek, a tre seek treatment. And we're beginning to understand how enormous, overwhelming experiences actually cause more or less permanent changes in the brain itself. Right? So they become somatic in some respects. And we're beginning to see how um, experience which can cause, you know, well, that a lot of suffering can cause changes in the brain, even though it may not originate in the brain. And just, again, as another aside, you know, we now take for granted the association of the brain and consciousness, but it wasn't always true. There was a time when um, it was thought that thinking originated in the larynx, 
because as people are thinking, there were measurable and subtle movements in the larynx. So it was a kind of a natural assumption to think that this was actually the seat of some kind of consciousness. And that idea prevailed until such time as they realized that people who had had laryngectomies showed every evidence of being able to think. So they had to reconsider it. Now, of course, we take for granted that it, you know, that it's the brain. So, um, back to our continuum. Um, Can I say yes, please. I think I've heard that in some body scan or something, but I, I don't know what the connection is. But. Well, maybe that is the connection. Maybe there is some association of movement in the tongue and the larynx. I've never noticed this, but that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We are a very complex being, and there are many. It is not reductionistic, and the tongue is connected to. Nervous system, the nervous system is connected to the brain, and it's all part of one magnificent thing. And uh, the reductionistic thing is. <coughs> yeah, well, the popular view now is that everything is brain based. And you even hear people say, oh, yeah, my brain made me, you know? People talk about their brains as if we experience our brains. Now, we don't experience our brains. We experience our experience, which may indeed be tied to the brain, but I don't experience what's happening, you know, in my cranium, you know? So even this has a certain metaphorical uh, dimension, you know? Now, we, we do know that the, the brain is tied to consciousness, but then so is the liver, you know, because with, without a liver... You have no consciousness either. But that's not clarifying. I, I apologize for that. Um, anyway, so just to repeat, stuff at this end didn't used to be an object of medical care, various social trends, the ad, uh, advent of psychoanalytic thinking, and other social forces have now pushed so much of what was formerly considered ordinary human uh, suffering into the domain of medicalization. Right, And um, as categories in medicine, all of the diagnostic categories at this end, they seem to me to be the least persuasive. Um, you know, they tend to be, um, to include, at this end of the spectrum, they include things like simply unwanted feelings or unwanted behaviors. So you can consider, for instance, uh, what became of shyness, right? Well, guess what? Shyness is now a, you know, social anxiety <coughs> disorder, right? Or um, ADAD, ADHD in boys. Uh, insomnia for adults is a clinical condition. And mild depression for everyone, right? <laughs> Who doesn't suffer some mild depression? Um, anyway, there was a, um, you know, the advent of ICD-10, uh, which is a diagnostic uh, manual. Um, 
I think this is kind of cute, and I'm not making it up. Uh, ICD-10, now obviously these are not all diagnoses, but it does allow a degree of specificity in um, encoding for various illnesses. And so these are some actual real uh, categories that one can identify in ICD-9. If an injury occurred in a chicken coop, an opera house, an art gallery, a squash court, or nine locations in and around a mobile home, you can actually get that level of specificity. Um, here's a code for a bizarre personal appearance, a low level of personal hygiene. Here's one where an injury was due to having walked into a lamppost, initial encounter, or, walk, <laughs> or walked into a lamppost, subsequent encounter. Um, here's a code that is a, a burn uh, due to water skis on fire. Uh, codes can now distinguish if an injury is due to running afoul of a duck, a macaw, a parrot, a goose, or a chicken. Um, yeah, not a joke, though. I mean, there are. This is obviously taken to absurdity, but this is all available with an ICD-10 or bitten by a, a turtle versus struck by a turtle. Um, so why why go on about this? I go on about this because the whole notion of a medical view of suffering is so prevalent that our own reflections about ourselves become inseparable from this medical view. We've drunk the groundwater, right? And it's in the groundwater. This is how we tend to think about ourselves. And so the, the entire difference between what is a, um, a difficulty and a disorder becomes kind of blurred. You know, it is wonderful that you hear so much now about mental health in school-aged children, but every form of distress is now talked about as a mental health issue. Now, this has obvious advantages and disadvantages, but the assumption is that if I'm unhappy, something is wrong, and it must be fixed. And ICD-9 even had a category of uh, misery and unhappiness disorder, you know, <laughs> Now, granted, DSM is, is not really intended to be a true encyclopedia. Uh, it's just a descriptive account to guide our research and make sure that, you, that we're using the terms in a consistent way. It's really more of a, a lexicon, but we tend to regard it as, a, a, as an encyclopedia as if the categories that are found in ICD-9 actually represent real disease entities. And so we're always, you know, people are always trying to peg it down. Do they have a little bit of... You hear this with folks in mental health who are earlier in their training, who um, have been taught the categories and then regard them as somehow uh, real, more real than they merit. And generally speaking, I think as folks become a little more seasoned, they begin to see that these are just useful devices to be discarded when, in fact, we see the vast range of individual differences that don't conform to these categories. But there are real advantages. So I don't, I don't mean, I'm not... I'm really not trying to trash the medical model at all. Um, among the advantages are the fact that it encourages people to seek treatment, right? In absence of a medical account, in absence of the thought that this is a disorder that is treatable, people will just suffer in silence. And even better, some treatment actually works, right? So that's quite wonderful. When we have a diagnosis, it is far less stigmatizing than often the idiosyncratic accounts that we invoke in the privacy of our own personal echo chambers, right? And a simple example of this is someone who is convinced that they are lazy, 
or worthless or unlovable, when we move from that stance to, oh, you are depressed, right? Well, that's really useful because now there's something actionable. When one has concluded that, there, that one's unhappiness is due to being worthless, what does it lead to? It leads to nothing, maybe even to suicide. But when it is regarded as a treatable condition, now there's the possibility of treatment. So socializing or re-socializing ourselves into understanding what is legitimately understood as medical offers the possibility of treatment. And it's less stigmatizing, you know, to think of ourselves as depressed as opposed to lazy, for instance. Um, yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, idea, you know, who is it? I don't know, it was Weber. Some, somebody said ideology follows interest, by which I mean how we think about things is often a reflection of the money, you know? So, whoops, that was the wrong. So, um, let me just show you this uh, to your point, which is. Um, Two curves, okay. <laughs> Let's imagine two curves, okay? This is the curve of the rate of diagnosis of what used to be called mental retardation, developmental delays, right? And it is almost the perfect inverse of the increase in the prevalence, the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, right? So what's happening here? Well, what's happening here is the funding was being shifted to these conditions. And suddenly, they became much more prominent at the same rate at which developmental delays seemed to subside. Now, was this a real change in an underlying medical condition, or are we simply thinking about it differently? Because that's where the money is, the money for intervention and treatment. Well, there, Right. It's not strictly speaking scientific. I mean, I was working in the mental health system 
um, when during the Massachusetts miracle, when suddenly there was all of this money that was going to be infused into the state hospital system, and we were going to do wonderful, wonderful things. And then Michael Dukakis lost the election to Ronald Reagan, and the true financial condition of Massachusetts was revealed, and suddenly all of the money was gone from the state hospital system. This was going to be a once-in-a-generation infusion of cash. And suddenly, what is the Department of Mental Health talking about but about the superior value of deinstitutionalization? You know? The way that we think about how we ought to treat people, we think is kind of objective and scientific, but in fact, it's being driven so much by the money. You know? There are a lot of these um, unseen factors, and this is why it's useful to have historians uh, on board as well. So back to the uh, benefits of medicalization. I mentioned already the notion of having um, an explanation that binds anxiety, and a medical explanation in particular is better than our idiosyncratic accounts. To say to somebody, you have an anxiety disorder. You know, oh, I have an anxiety disorder. I'm not just an anxious person. What's the difference? Well, you capitalize it. I don't know. It seems to be helpful. It's helpful because it helps to socialize people into an alternative explanation that may be more amenable to a positive outcome. You know, and I use the example of having a delusion. And what is a delusion? What kind of an action does it lead to? It's probably less uh, promising than medical treatment. Another advantage of this tendency to medicalize suffering is that it encourages um, research and assessment, right? empirical assessment, so that we can maybe begin to discard all of our accumulated false ideas about what's wrong here. You know? And we do have all kinds of weird ideas. A lot of progress is not necessarily that we're coming to a better understanding, but that we're able to kind of give up a lot of our crazy fantasies about what's wrong with somebody. You know? The limitations of the medical movement. You know, oh, I'm so aware of the time here. Um, Okay, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to give us a 10-minute bio break, and we'll pick up here at, uh, well, 10 minutes. Okay. Okay. Need any water? Oh, water. Thank you. I need to remember to drink. Okay, so uh, where we left off were uh, some of the um, benefits of medicalization of suffering. And I want to talk a little bit about the limitations of medicalizing suffering as well. And again, this is, this is not to trash the medical model, you know. But just as it is applied to suffering, and in particular toward that end of the continuum that is more ordinary human unhappiness, there's some uh, unfortunate uh, consequences. Um, one of the things about the medical model is that it, um, it's really excellent at explaining what the problem is and often what is to be done. One of the things that it tends to lack, though, is an account of why is this happening to me? You know? And for this, uh, typical non-Western traditional medicine is much superior 
you know? It may not know what's to be done, particularly, or at least may not be necessarily effective, but it's really good at contextualizing and making sense of it. Um, there's actually a wonderful book that I've mentioned in the bibliography that some of you may be familiar with, Anne Fadiman, The Spirit Catches You When You Fall Down. Yeah, a lot of people read this in graduate school, and, and it's just a beautifully researched um, and well-written book that describes um, a family in Merced, California, a Hmong family from Laos, uh, who had uh, a daughter with severe epilepsy, you know, disabling to the point that this child really never developed. And it's about their encounter with the medical system. And the medical system, of course, doing everything they can to socialize the parents into understanding the nature of this disorder and the parents' enormous resistance to this as well. Because they had their own explanations, which were not mechanistic. They had to do with having bumped into a spirit or stepped over a spirit inadvertently, and this was a certain kind of punishment. Except that it wasn't truly a punishment because they saw their daughter, this severely disabled baby, as somehow gifted. And so the whole book is this constant effort of people who had the best intentions confronting one another's intractable views of what is going on. Really just a lovely description of the limitations of uh, the medical model, even as it offered some potential um, treatment. Um, yeah. Another limitation is that some suffering is a natural and appropriate response to unjust or intolerable conditions, right? That call for social action and not symptomatic relief, you know? This goes to uh, the point that you were making, I think you were making earlier. Um, and we tend to be so individualistic in our focus, we tend to look inward rather than to mobilize for action. And this may be a particular cultural emphasis where even our treatment tends to occur one-to-one -one behind closed doors instead of in communities, which many uh, populations understand is implicitly more healing. And I'm, I'm reminded of this comment that you're probably familiar with from Abraham Maslow, who said that when, when, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So people are unhappy and we throw them in our customary and familiar forms of intervention. You know? Some suffering, we might think reasonably, is more existential or spiritual in nature right, than it is medical. That it's related to being born as a human being. So in the Buddhist lore, this is the first noble truth, which is that suffering is inescapable in a mind that is bound by greed, anger, and delusion. Right? And not all suffering is treatable by mental health intervention, by psychiatry, and so on. And frankly, clinicians often oversell their ability to be able to intervene. And, and the consequence of this, of course, is that not only are people suffering, but they have now also acquired a view of themselves as untreatable or treatment failures. And clinicians will collude with this as well to some degree. Uh, this is unfortunate, an unfortunate outcome. When we oversell, when we think that we're able to fix things that are maybe more baked into the nature of being human, people wind up a little bit more disillusioned and a lot more poor 
in the process. Um, in his book, Medical Nemesis, Ivan Illich argued that medicine has expanded into all aspects of human existence, all cultural and personal aspects of the struggles of life, growing up, raising children, dealing with adversity, dealing with crime, sadness, ambition, disease, and death, all have a way of falling under the rubric of health. And this removes, removes a huge range of um, of human experience from the realm of personal wisdom and individual understanding, placing it in the realm of medicine with the accompanying aura of biologic determinism and technological susceptibility. Um, I recently also found a column uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, from James Goodwin, uh, the article was entitled Geriatrics and the Limits of Modern Medicine. And in it, he distinguishes suffering from physical symptoms. Right? This should be familiar. Right? The way in which we understand from our practice that pain does not, is not synonymous with suffering. So he writes about the medical profession's fail, uh, it's, um, the professions. I'll just read this. He writes about medical professions to recognize the assault on identity and self-concept imposed by serious illness. In other words, um, when someone becomes ill, people will differ in the degree to which they become their illness. They identify strongly with what is wrong. And anytime we're suffering, we can really create an identity around it. You have an anxiety disorder. Oh, I am now an anxious person, you know? And, you know, we hear this. I'm an anxious person. Well, how often are you anxious? Well, not all of the time, but we can kind of create an identity around this. Or we have an injury, and it becomes completely preoccupying. So he writes that medicalization externalizes experience, whereas the major tasks of aging are internal. Every clinician has witnessed the medicalized 80-year-old obsessed with arthritis, Alzheimer's disease, and serum cholesterol levels. Contrast this with the patient, with someone else in the same physical condition who admits that her knees are bad and that she has trouble remembering things. Right? Which patient is better off? Right? We can make a career out of our suffering or out of our ailments, and not necessarily to any particular advantage. Another limitation of the medical model is the degree to which all treatment gives rise to certain side effects. You know, in the case of, uh, of that are often uh, pretty serious relative to a mild disorder. In the case of the treatment of, of the talking cure of psychotherapy, I mean, some of, the, some of the limitations are the way that it can tend to reinforce rumination, right? Let's just think more and more and more about it. Or it can tend to encourage a certain level of dependency on the clinician, as though all goodness or all potential for alleviation is to be found in, in, the, in the therapeutic relationship. And, of course, the other thing is you don't know what you're getting in a therapist. They can be completely whacked and impose all manner of interpretations on people. And this, this happens, right? There are just no safeguards here. Once you're trained, you're off in the world, and, you know, God, good luck to you. Another limitation of the kind of medicalization of uh, mental suffering is that treatment simply may not work. Right? And when it doesn't work, what do we do? 
we look for more of it. You know, my brother-in-law, late brother-in-law, was a psychoanalyst. And after his first analysis, he was still kind of troubled by things. So he did another analysis. And when even that seemed to leave him with a feeling of unsatisfactoriness, he got into psychotherapy with a social worker who uh, happened to be a meditator. You know, and I think for the first time it began to suggest that maybe the solution to his problem was not to dig deeper, but to, but to get a hold of a ladder, right? to get out of the pit. The medical model with regard to mental suffering is not necessarily very scientific anyway. Very few types of psychological treatment have been carefully studied, you know? which is to say, you know, with the gold standard of randomized, blinded, you know, these kinds of studies. Now, there's been, um, under the influence of the medicalization of psychotherapy, I mean, okay, just an aside here, you know, psychotherapy is regarded sort of as, well, clinical interventions are regarded as a subset of medicine. But, you know, I don't know that that was a foregone conclusion. You know, arguably, okay, God, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole again. Um, Freud was a neurologist, and he was doing some study of, you know, the nervous system of some primitive little creature. And he was doing this in the, in the university, but because he was Jewish, he was thrown out of the university. He could no longer hold a faculty appointment, so he had to support himself. So he wound up seeing patients. So, you know, this is a bit of a stretch, but maybe if he hadn't been Jewish, maybe psychotherapy would not have been a medical profession. You know? Maybe if he had been a poet or if he had been a rabbi, the entire enterprise of psychoanalysis might look really quite differently. But for various historical reasons, we find that it is a part of medicine. And because it's a part of medicine, it has to conform to all of these contrivances that we have in medicine. We need to have a diagnosis, it has to be coded, there needs to be a treatment plan, there need to be progress notes, and you know, for it to be reimbursable by medical insurance, we need certain evidence that it is an appropriate treatment of an appropriate frequency and so on. And this is kind of useful in that um, there have to be some governors on the cost. You know? We need to put the money where the money, where the, where the benefit actually is but it forces the uh, enterprise, which is not particularly scientific, into this kind of medical frame. And any of us who um, have used your health insurance benefits for therapy, you know that it's a contortion. That you, know, you say one thing to the insurance company and it bears no resemblance to what you're actually doing you know, with your clients. But you know, we pretend. We pretend that this is... Um, and it's kind of appropriate that we try to bring some empiricism to treatment so that we're not paying a lot of money you know, out of public funds for crystal therapy. And no offense if anybody's deeply into crystal therapy. Um, anyway, the research into most forms of treatment have not been done in a, in a particularly systematic way. If you look at outcome research, you realize that even the gold standard of treatment, something like cognitive behavioral therapy for depression, is, statistically speaking, effective. But when you look at the treatment effect, the magnitude of the benefit, it is really modest. 
And this is in a controlled environment where you have everybody doing the same form of treatment with people who have only one disorder. You know, and this is not realistic because in the real world, people don't have a single disorder and nobody's doing therapy in a particularly fixed way. So the entire medicalization, uh, the promise of this as arriving at empirically effective treatment, I think has really not paid off. What we do know is that most forms of treatment that are effective don't depend on a particular empirically validated type of intervention. They depend on other factors entirely, you know, like, first and foremost, the nature of the treatment relationship. And there's tremendous variability between therapists. So another limitation here is that from a Buddhist perspective, the kinds of things that we do in the name of treatment are actually in some danger of strengthening certain defilements, if you will. You know, they can have a way of potentially reifying elements of our identity. You know, people get into therapy sometimes because they want to know their true self, or maybe the therapist says, you need to find your true self. And as a metaphor, it's not a bad one when people's experience subjectively is that they've been living somehow falsely, you know? For, for whatever reason. But the whole notion of finding a true self, right? I mean, this is rooted in the assumption that such a thing exists and can be found, as if, as if you could find the true nature of the onion by successively peeling away its layers, right? So the assumptions that we may have about what it means to be human become the underlying assumptions of, of treatment, and those, sim those assumptions may simply be really limiting. Um, Certainly, there's a lot of room for charlatanism in the medicalized treatment of mental, mental illness. I, I had a, a colleague who I worked with at a clinic. Um, I didn't know him well, but we'd sit at the end of the day and do our notes. And then years later, I ran into him. And we had a conversation. He had, as it happened, he had written a whole bunch of books. Um, and I asked him what has been the effect of having published so much uh, on his career and on his life. And he said that there had been very little impact he'd probably gotten more referrals through the Yellow Pages than he had through having been a published author. But he did get an invitation to go on Oprah. You know, so this, this was kind of interesting. And I said, well, what was the situation? He said, well, Oprah had a guest who was a specialist in past life regression therapy. And, the, and um, they wanted him to come on and rebut it, you know, to kind of say this is all a crock. But he said that she presented a case in which uh, she was treating a four-year-old who was afraid of the water. And she did a past life regression with a four-year-old and discovered, of course, that it was because he drowned during the Civil War. Right? And so I said, so why didn't you go on to Oprah and, and, and do your part and, and debunk this? He said, the kid got better. What am I going to say? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, another limitation. Uh, this will be familiar to some of you, but there is this argument that our concepts of mental illness are fundamentally social constructs. You know, people like Thomas Saz, uh, who challenged the idea of mental illness itself as a disease entity, whether it truly does exist as a disease entity. And then R.D. Lang, uh, some of these names may be familiar, who also critiqued the notion of symptoms as indicative of an underlying disorder or disease, and instead argued for seeing 
our so-called um, disorders in a social and a cultural context. So we've come to understand suffering through the lens of something quasi-medical. It's not inappropriate. It has its benefits, but it is pretty imperfect. And by the way, um, even mindfulness, by the way, as, a, as an intervention, has become highly medicalized. Anybody notice this? Uh, there was a headline in the New York Times yesterday about the medicalization of alternative treatments. It said something like 17% of Americans, and this doesn't sound right to me, maybe they meant med Americans in treatment, are being given some kind of alternative treatments or are practicing mindfulness. And of course, the way that mindfulness is now depicted is as another intervention. You know, that ain't bad. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn, I think, made mindfulness uh, acceptable because there was a body of research behind it. And the research was pretty persuasive, and it made it acceptable for people to engage in the secularized uh, process, which works. You know, for many conditions, it's really very effective. So can't complain about this, but but there's a way in which our use of even mindfulness practice, I think, has um, in the medicalization of it, uh, there's a cost. So I like to think about um, like MBSR and other forms of medicalized use of meditation as being a bit akin to an ethnobotanist who hears about the medicinal healing qualities of some exotic plant. Um, that's harvested by a, you know, in a traditional society. So the ethnobotanist goes and does field work and he observes all of the rituals and how they um, find the plant and how they process it and boil it and distill it and so on. And he takes these plants back to the laboratory and then distills you know, the active ingredient you know, in order to be able to make a medicine. And again, there's, there's some, some value to this. But very often what is healing is, has been um, extracted or has been withdrawn. The idea that we can find the single active ingredient means that we are often missing the, the true healing potential, which is something much larger than you know, something that can be distilled. And in fact, you, know, you can find factor analytic studies of mindfulness practice where they try to figure out what is the thing that works? Is it attention, self-regulation, um, affective control, uh, I've forgotten what all else, but you know, there are efforts to try to bring it down into categories that are already familiar so we can get rid of all of the other crap that doesn't seem to really apply. Okay. So I want to come back to the um, issue of human nature, uh, but a little bit differently. Um, I would first of all argue that it is human nature for us to suffer. I didn't make this up, you know. And so is the wish to be rid of it. You know, that's maybe indeed baked into the definition of suffering. It is the wish for things to be different from how they are. But it is, as I was arguing yesterday, human nature to try to arrive at some explanation, some way to account to ourselves, for ourselves, for what it is that we're experiencing. Um, nope, nope, nope. Okay, so I want to talk about 
briefly about how different views of human nature all account for what it is to be normal, what normal development looks like, what goes wrong, why we suffer, and then what's to be done about it. So I won't say a lot about the scientific view that I haven't, you know, because I've already discussed it, but um, just a word on this. Um, I would suggest that there is some doubt about the degree to which we can really apply a scientific worldview effectively to human life, you know? There is a way in which human beings don't sit still under a microscope. Strictly speaking, a scientific worldview, in order to be scientific, has to be mechanistic. And therefore, it, seems, it sees all phenomena as reducible to physics and to matter. So, for instance, this is the, the effort to try to understand more about the relationship of consciousness to the brain, the so-called um, hard problem or the big problem uh, in in neurology. And the scientific worldview, therefore, suggests a certain kind of a determinism, or at least it did before the gradual begrudging acknowledgement of quantum physics right, and all of its uh, recognition of indeterminism. And we have good reason to suspect that consciousness depends on the brain, but how it gives rise to consciousness remains a mystery, and don't let anybody tell you that they've solved it. You know? And people will. People will say consciousness is what the brain does, as if that explains a thing. It remains the enduring mystery. You know? So there remains a certain dualism in which some spirit has to animate the, the machinery, you know, the hardware of the body, something that seems to lie outside of identifiable cause and effect, which leaves room, rightly or wrongly, for matters of free will, right, and responsibility and so on, things that don't, that subjectively seem true and don't seem to be easily tied to activity of the brain. Um, now Spinoza argued that mind and matter were both part of the same processes and that mental phenomena are synonymous with brain events. Uh, interesting perspective, probably not something that can be proved at this point. So enough about this sort of scientific view for now. Um, Let's take up briefly the Upanishadic tradition, the Vedic tradition. And I am not an expert in this, so hold your questions. <laughs> Unless you want to be deeply disappointed. Actually, um, I will. much of what I understand here um, comes from this volume. I don't know if it's in the bibliography. It's from Oxford University Press. It's called Ten Theories of Human Nature. Um, it's actually kind of dull, geeky, interesting reading. If you're into into that, into this stuff. So in the Upanishadic tradition, there are first of all very diverse. I mean, it's a huge, huge tradition, and there's not a unified view. You know, there's a lot of diversity within it. So this is all a kind of, you know, distillation. But in this view, there's one reality, and that reality is differentiated by name and visible appearance. Uh, Nama rupa in in Buddhism are the term for for name and form but that the ultimate reality is uh, often described um, or named uh, Brahman, right? Uh, which is the totality uh, that is beyond all multiple forms. So Brahman is the ultimate reality and the ground of being and the essence that permeates the entirety of reality. 
It is the world which is inexpressible, impossible to define, beyond the experience of the senses, only described typically in negation as not this and not this and not this. At the level of ultimate real, realization, all multiplicity is of an interconnected unity. Reality is expressed in multiple forms, for instance, the entire Hindu pantheon, but it is ultimately one through name and appearance. Right? Um, all of these beings are just regarded as different manifestations of, of the one. And in this respect, too, the self is radically connected to everything. There is an identity of the self with this Brahman, with ultimate nature. Now it recognizes, this tradition recognizes, it recognizes the, the sort of transitory, um, ordinary self, right? That's identified with the body, that's identified with the social environment. And this is the, the sense of self that we are motivated to try to, um, to preserve and to aggrandize. But it is not our ultimate true identity, which is Atman, that which is unborn, unaging, beyond hunger or thirst or delusion or death. And in that respect, it's our ultimate nature. Uh, this tradition suggests that the self is undifferentiated, the differentiation itself being a kind of an illusion. And Atman is not an object of consciousness, but the subject. It's consciousness itself. And I, I won't go into this now, but some of you may note the departure of this view from the Buddhist view. You know, Maybe later. So this ultimate self, this Atman, is not autonomous or independent, but it is a part of the larger network of reality. And the true self animates all beings, and that means that they are inseparable, like spokes to the hub of a wheel. So in the Upanishads, there's a recognition of egos, which are identified with the body, identified with the environment, but are not regarded as ultimate nor true self just a finite conditional mask of our, of our infinite nature. And so again, separateness is regarded as some kind of, a, of an illusion. Um, and so growth, you know, we suffer because of our failure to recognize. So we move from identifi identification with the body and the ego associated with the body to identification with the internal eternal and infinite self because the true self it is understood is free of all afflictions and that bondage itself is ultimately an illusion. Oh goodness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down another rabbit hole here because I think it's pertinent. Many years ago I, I had the good fortune of taking a seminar with Daniel Ellsberg. Do people remember who he was? Yeah. Who leaked the Pentagon Papers. He had worked for five presidents, the Rand Corporation, the CIA, and the military. And he was particularly alarmed by uh, the deception, uh, particularly around nuclear proliferation and around the Vietnam War. And he had a lot of time to think about disobedience because he fully expected to be imprisoned for the rest of his life for, for leaking the Pentagon Papers. Um, but in the last day of this um, seminar, which went on you know, a day a week for, for a few months, um, he had a conversation with Ram Das. And I, and I recorded this whole thing. We were sitting around a seminar table, and it was so interesting because I could hear the two of them struggling to try to find common ground. And I think they'd had this conversation. And, 
and it was frustrating to me, and I, I couldn't put my finger on it on why, and I, and I finally kind of came up with a conclusion. For Ellsberg, he felt that we needed to awaken, we needed to awaken to the reality of the imminent danger of nuclear proliferation and our easy tendency to get lulled into complacency you know, through the dissimulation of our leaders. Right? There is a major existential threat we need to wake up. Ram Das is saying, yeah, we need to wake up, but this reality, this thing that we take to be reality, it's all an illusion. Right? And our attachment to this world is what's causing us suffering. We need to awaken to our ultimate nature. So they agreed we needed to awaken, but awaken <laughs> to what? They had very different views of what constituted the threat and what constituted reality. So you can see, you know, how we diagnose the problem is going to have everything to do with what we're going to do about it. And so they ended in this kind of standoff. Um, so in this system, if you will, we could say the diagnosis is, or the problem is ignorance, right? It's ignorance of the true nature of reality. And because Brockman is beyond reality, um, it's easy for us to misunderstand, and we identify with what we perceive as the objects of ordinary awareness. We take this world to be, to be more real than it merits, and that's our problem. So we suffer from ignorance of the true reality, <clears throat> the true nature of reality, which is ignorance of the true nature of our own selves. So it's a problem then in a sense of identity. We've been blinded by the projects of our own ego, resulting in alienation and fragmentation, loneliness, conflict, crime, hostility, and so on. Individuality plagues us with existential anxiety because we don't perceive our true nature. Life grounded in the false belief in the separate self is not free, but is heavily conditioned and determined. And in this case, that determination is what, uh, what uh, the Vedic tradition calls karma. Uh, karma as determining factors, you know, particularly found in our particular actions. So we are bound by our desire and we are bound to act out of this condition and that conditioning is cyclical. And there's very little that we can do to influence it. Um, you know, you hear about karma as, as dharma in, in the Vedic tradition, which is to say you do your dharma because it is your karma to be born as a, um, uh, as a shepherd and you have no choice but to live out this life as the best shepherd you can be. And maybe through countless eons of time, you can be reborn as a Brahmin priest and eventually find moksha and complete release. But there's a, a sense of real determinism, right, which, uh, and fatalism. But again, this is an aside, but, you know, the Buddha took these same terms, these familiar terms, and he just flipped them. So that karma, instead of meaning determinism, was actually meant to describe the degree to which we actually have some agency, that we can understand the laws of cause and effect to begin to influence our own destiny. So he took this, uh, the Vedic term and he kind of twisted it. Um, in the same way that the Dharma, instead of being that which you must do, you know, one of the delusions that falls away with gradual awakening on the Buddhist path is conviction in the efficacy of rites and rituals. He's like thumbing his nose at the Vedic tradition, saying, you know, doing things out of rote because it is your duty? Forget about it. That's not going to get you anywhere. Anyway. <clears throat> <clears throat> um, 
So what's the treatment? Treatment. Description is for a specialized sort of knowledge, a kind of a non-ordinary knowledge, because or, our ordinary knowledge is rooted in delusion, the illusion of separate separateness. Um, So there's something about learning how to abandon our conventional way of thinking. Even, um, even through scholarship, conceivably, it's possible to begin to abandon uh, much of our former learning and to be able to, um, to be like a child, you know, to be able to perceive like a child. But even that, too, has to be abandoned. So you know, in, in, a, in a developmental view of um, in, in Hinduism, uh, one of the kind of implicit uh, elements is this notion that in the course of development, we're not moving into something more attuned to Brahman, to our true nature. We're moving away from it. And that, in fact, children are regarded as really close to Godhead. And in the course of development, we're moving into something that is much more um, you know, profane as opposed to sacred. So there's this notion that kids have it, and although it probably doesn't do them a whole lot of good, you know. Paint like a, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot of practices uh, to be found in this tradition, including, um, you know, renunciate, renunciation to God. But, you know, the early texts don't really have a lot of technique in them. They're kind of nonspecific about what's to be done. There's something about meditation, but it was really later commentators who wound up expanding on that particular material. So that's a view. It's kind of interesting because it is the context uh, against which, uh, you know, the Buddha, I think, kind of offered a bit of a reformation, but more on that later. Um, Biblical view. And I am going to tell you, I am out of my depth on this, so please correct my mistakes. But um, there are a lot of divergent views to be found within the Bible. So this is... um, maybe a grotesque oversimplification of matters. But in the Old Testament, God made the earth, and it was good, and he made humans, and for a while, everything was okay. And then, of course, things go wrong. And they go wrong because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. You know, there are a lot of problems. Cain kills Abel. You know, it just becomes a shit show. And, and after the fall, God seems to regret his creation, And um, indeed, if it weren't for Noah, he was ready to wipe the slate clean and start all over again. Um, He might have undone his handiwork, but Noah more or less saves mankind, and God changes his mind, Um, which is interesting. God can change his mind, you know? So this is, um, you know, there were later views of God that depicted God as being uh, omniscient and omnipotent, but earlier on, it was more like, oops, made a mistake. <laughs> let's, let's have a redo. And of course, early on, God would talk to individuals. Later on, he was a little bit more selective about who he talked to, and it was mostly of the prophets and, and various intermediaries. So the early view, like the Hebrew view, is to see human beings in relation, in relation to God because he created them in a special position, which is to say he created humans in his own image. But humans were not conceived to possess an immaterial element. 
separable from the body. In other words, in the early view, there was not much to be said about there being an eternal soul. Right? And there was also no clear uh, description or emphasis on heaven or hell. So people were different from animals and matter, but the idea of a soul came later, really in the time of Jesus. So essential to this early view was the notion of there being some kind of freedom that human beings had, freedom of choice. And we can be obedient or we can be disobedient, and it is in our hands. We can be faithful, we can be faithless, we can be prideful, and so on. And that goodness is seen as residing in our relationship to the transcendent God. Something that is really a matter of our attitude or of our heart, not something available only to those with elite knowledge. You know, for the Greeks, it was a pretty a matter of elite knowledge. And certainly for the, in the Brahmanic tradition, the Vedic tradition, it was um, the exclusive domain of the priesthood. Nobody else had access to it. The problem here in this view is um, our capacity to misuse this freedom, you know, to obey or to disobey. It's, and that's seen in... Um, prideful actions and selfishness in promulgating injustice and so on. So that's the problem, which is when we use our freedom to choose evil over God. And the punishments, which I mentioned earlier, include having to work for food, the pain of childbirth, and even death. So we might now regard these things as biological universals of being human, but in this early view they were seen as punishments. So in the ideal, maybe we would be free of such afflictions you know, of death, of painful childbirth, of having to work for food, and so on. So what goes wrong is that having been made in fellowship with God, that is to say there is a covenant between God and human beings, we turn away. We missed our shot. And redemption then, right, the treatment, is to be found in returning and restoring the original relationship with God as best we can. Um, and I mentioned this before, it's interesting, even if we do this, it doesn't seem to fully remove the punishment that God imposed um, for anybody. I mean, we still need a job, right? You can be good and you still need an income. Any objections to what I've described here? Okay. So, New Testament, um, the birth of Jesus suggests that humans can be in some sense divine. Right? This was the, regarded as the bridge between the human and the divine world. And in this, now spirit and flesh are distinguished. So there's a kind of a dualism which is not strictly between the physical or the, versus the spiritual or mental, but between the redeemed and the unredeemed. This is the big divide that opens up. Um, and this is often tied, of course, to the language of being reborn as a believer. So in, in the... Um, in the New Testament view, the diagnosis, if you will, is that of original sin, right? That we are somehow irredeemably debauched. You know, this, we are all collectively born into this condition, and there's nothing, nothing that we can actually do to be truly perfect in God's estimation. We may know what is right, we frequently fail to behave in conformity with that understanding. And this fall is of all creation and of all humanity. It becomes a global problem that we have failed in this respect to, to be perfect in God's eyes. Um, in this New Testament view, sin 
is not strictly physical. You know, sex is permitted under some circumstances, you know, in marriage, for instance. True sin is regarded as mental or spiritual, that is to say, in favoring our own selfish will over God's. Again, seen in sins like pride. And in doing so, we now endure alienation from God, and this is our punishment. So what is the treatment? You know, what's the intervention? What are we supposed to do? It's a little bit ambiguous because um, sometimes it's described as uh, seeking God's grace, or it only comes through God's grace, rather, or alternatively through our invitation of grace, through being born again, through exercising our free will and choice. I mean, there's some real paradox here in whether it's, um, we, have as a, we have agency in our own salvation, you know, or whether it comes from God. Um, but if there is to be salvation, it is to be found somehow in faith. Does this accord with people's understanding? I'm not Christian, so I don't really have, um, I wasn't raised, I wasn't bathed in this stuff, yeah. Yeah, there, there's always been tension in um, Western Christianity behind that idea of original sin and the competing at the other pole, which is we are born in God's image and the Spirit of God lives within us de facto. So, so one way to, you know, and, and they point to different remedies mystical tradition, both East and West, talks about uh, a restoration of that harmony with the divine through a kind of an acknowledgement that that's what it is. You know, pointed to grace again. Hmm. And first, beginning with an acknowledgement that we are sinners? Uh, yeah. Uh, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a given. But another given this inborn grace, this inborn spirit of the divine that's always there despite sin or not sin. So waking up to that is one key to uh, freedom from, from that sin of alienation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It, it, it seems to have... Um, We'll hold your question in a second. It seems to have a bit of a parallel, even to be found in Buddhism. Yes. Right? Which is this notion either that we need to cultivate certain qualities, you know, we need to abandon our defilements and so on, and, and through bhavana and so on, versus the, the Mahayana notion that we are innately already awakened, we just need to eliminate the obstacles to clear seeing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I was just say that. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you for the endorsement. Yeah. And that the 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 actual message is that God is love. Christ was a messenger of that. We are love, and so we should live in loving community. And from that perspective, then why is it that we suffer? What's what's wrong? Oh, that we why fail do we to suffer? Love. Yeah, we fail to. Uh, we don't recognize God's love. Um, let me see. Uh, 
Let me think on that. Okay. <laughs> All right. I would say that basically, yeah. Yeah, that we, you know, our blindness keeps us from seeing. I mean, I, it's not that different from Buddhism, only kind of metaphorically, God would be the sort of empty awareness and Christ would be the loving awareness kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we're being so simplistic because these are huge traditions with so many variations. But, um, you know, the, the, yeah, Paige. The other thing is um, that Christ's death on the cross was atoning for original sin, too. Like, he made his ultimate sacrifice to atone for original sin. So, therefore, you know, that was that's the other way that he let us into um, forgiveness. So, uh, I don't want to tie everybody up in my effort to, no, no, to to clarify my own confusion, but if if Christ died to atone for the sins of humanity, Mm -hmm. why is it that we still suffer collective original sin? Why didn't it clear the decks? Yeah, Anyway, I'm going to move on to another tradition briefly. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a Marxist view. Marxism. Yeah, because why not? (laughs) You know, so in Marxism, um, Marxism is entirely uh, materialism, which is to say specifically capital. It really tries to understand the human experience through the lens of, of capital. And um, the origin of human difficulty then is in this materialistic analysis of human history and not in religion, not in metaphysics, or even in ideology or ideas. The ultimate reality, if you want to understand human suffering, is economic reality. You know? And that's really compelling when you dig deep into this, right? And in the Marxist view, human experience is best understood as being shaped socially, not primarily psychologically, that our psychology itself is a bit of a product of our social lives. And indeed, you know, within social science, you see this view a lot, that, that selves are, for instance, constructed socially. But you know, the individual then is subordinated to a kind of a collective understanding of social forces. The problem, suffering, is described as alienation. This may be familiar. And it has economic and social origins. And therefore, the treatment or the alleviation is also to be found in social and economic change. The alienation that Marx described was from the products of our own labor, which is to say that we work for others in such a way that we don't belong to ourselves and that it results in a lack of community due to the inherently competitive nature of capitalism. Now, as far as this stuff goes, it seems pretty persuasive, right? And indeed, in my own work, I kind of think about, you know, when I think about myself as a psychotherapist, I, I tend to think of myself as a medic. You know, we are working in this inherently unstable and um, impossible capitalistic environment that guarantees that people are going to be at the winning or the losing end of the stick. 
and that what we are doing as psychotherapists, as medics, is kind of pasting people together and sending them back into the field of conflict. And that field of conflict is fundamentally economic in nature. You know? <clears throat> so it was Marx's, Marx's view that capitalism limits the full development of human potential. So what's the prescription? What do you do? Revolution. Yeah. That's all we need. That there be utopia through revolution, through the abolition of private property. And that this is, uh, he argued, is to be seen in the inevitable movement of history as capitalism will fall under its inherent inner contradictions. You know? Doesn't seem to be going well. (laughs) You know? You really wonder just how unbalanced things can become. And the, the answer seems to be more more imbalanced. So that's a particular view, right, about why we're suffering. Um, Take up briefly, um, maybe not so briefly, an early um, psychoanalytic view. And and I I like to pull on the early psychoanalytic view, although it's a little bit unfair because by and large as a field, psychoanalysis has moved beyond a lot of Freud's um, early positions. But I really like it because he was... um, he was so contrary, you know. He, he, his positions were so in the face of polite society, and he was utterly uncompromising, you know. He was a man of his times and a man operating so against his times as well. And even though a lot of his ideas have, have changed, I think in some respects it's not... I think they've changed in part because of... What, what, what I think of as regression to the mean. He takes an uncomfortable, radical position, and everybody goes, says, yeah, but, and they want to bring the whole corpus of theory back into something that seems less an affront to our views of ourselves as being in command of our own destinies. You know, his view was pretty, was pretty, pretty radical. Anyway, in his view... Uh, human nature was ultimately driven by and reducible to the id, right? You know, with its focus on its own pleasure and on avoiding pain. You know, the id was this kind of blind uh, force that was unrelated to and unconcerned with reality. It wants what it wants, this animal nature, dictated by the pleasure principle. Right? And the pleasure principle is, as someone was saying last night, is wanting more of what's pleasant and wanting to avoid what is unpleasant. And I would even suggest that within psychology, it is the nearest thing as there is to a true axiom. You know? uh, we may not be able to identify simple universals in the nature of human suffering or in human nature, but I think this pleasure principle, whatever we call it, seems to be a universal, right? Uh, You know, it's the same observation that the Buddha made as well. You know, these great observers of human nature all kind of conclude that we are constantly being driven to minimize our displeasure and our pain and to try to maximize our, our pleasure and our satisfaction. The id is always unconscious, but it is always making demands on conscious life. So this is already a bit alarming, particularly to to Victorian Europe, where 
uh, the whole idea of progress was that we were going to have mastery over nature. And here's Freud saying, you don't have mastery over your own nature. You're goddamn animals under there. And you don't even acknowledge it. Right? The it is disorganized. Laws of logic and reason do not apply. The id knows no good, it knows no evil, only its emotional and mental investment and energy on the object of its desire. Right? Even other people are fundamentally valued insofar as they become objects of our gratification. You know? This is dark. Now, you know, so this is, this is the pleasure principle, but then there's also another principle at operation, which was the reality principle, right? This is the, um, you know, the orientation to the constraints of social life, which basically is harnessing the id so that it can get some degree of gratification without destroying the social fabric. Because, it, you know, an unharnessed id is not going to find a place in society. So the ego kind of exists as a bit of a governor, like a rider to the horse, was the metaphor that Freud used. Now, this reality principle relative to the pleasure principle is pretty weak, you know? Barely up to the job relative to other parts of the, the personality, it's pretty much incapable of containing the id, you know? But it operates, you know, the ego as the, uh, the home of the reality principle is the broker or the conciliator, the conciliator, between reality and the demands of the id, but it really has very little power of its own. You know, even the ego is often doing the id's billing without conscious awareness of being so. So in this view, we've got suffering coming from a few different directions. One of them is um, suffering is coming from our own bodies, right? which is doomed. Our bodies are doomed to decay, right? And indeed, Freud suffered from, uh, from mouth cancer. You know? He didn't make a lot of it because he understood that the decay of the body is basically a kind of an impersonal event and therefore not much the, the domain of uh, deeper understanding. Another source of suffering was, sadly, the external world you know, with all of its constraints. It doesn't give us what we want or makes us jump through all kinds of hoops. And then... Um, our relationship to other people. One of Freud's principal concerns was the way in which we can inflict pain on one another through our aggressive natures. The way we can turn other people into objects of our craving and aggression. Right? Yeah. Um, so his view was, relatively speaking, um, pessimistic. Um, Pessimistic, I think, in part because he saw these instinctual drives, particularly of, you know, of aggression and libido, as being instinctual, which is to say they, were, um, they baked into our animal natures and were immutable. There's nothing we're going to be able to do about it except to find some kind of an unpleasant um, compromise. You know? But there was, we were at the mercy, and the best we could do is to try to find socially acceptable ways to get our needs met. But it was a compromise, you know. Um, I remember seeing an article in Life magazine about Freud as a kid, and, and they had a picture of, of him, you know, and he had this, you know, grizzled appearance. And, 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 and the caption said, Dr. Freud, why, why, why do you look so unhappy all the time? He says, uh, I was going to try to fake a German accent, but 
He said, but I, I am unhappy. I'm unhappy with humankind, <laughs> which is quite a burden. But, you know, in his view, human nature is defined by the id being immutable, meant that there was no freedom to be found, only symptomatic relief to a degree when we replaced primitive defenses with more mature defenses. You know, so what is the possibility of um, liberation? Well, there really isn't. The best that could be hoped for is to turn extraordinary misery into ordinary human suffering. Right? Way to go, you know? That, that's really uplifting. Paul, yeah? Did he believe that people could become satisfied and happy? I don't think he had a positive conception. I think he thought that if we could ever truly know our, our natures, we would be crushed by it. And therefore, the best we could do is to have uh, reasonable, mature defenses that allow us to work and to love. But no real positive conception of what happiness or freedom might look like. And in this respect, I think the entire psychoanalytic model was and is a kind of a brilliant diagnostic model not just in the aggregate, but when you get down to the individual level and you look at individual psychologies, you've got this <coughs> lovely description of how we screw ourselves up, you know? Of the infinite ways in which we can contort ourselves to try to adjust to this uh, intractable problem, you know, the immovable force and the unstoppable, whatever it is, the unstoppable force and the in immovable object, right? Now, this is an extreme view, and later views, even within the psychoanalytic tradition, started to shift. Um, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but they began to shift because, at least in the early view, all psychic energy was fundamentally um, from the id. You know? And the best that could happen then is it kind of gets a little scrubbed um, so that we can then do things that are socially acceptable in order to gratify the needs of the id. Later um, analytic views started to suggest that, that energy could be neutralized through the ego and that the ego seemed fully capable of engaging activities that were not reducible to gratification of the drives. Like, maybe we do art for art's sake and not just because we think being successful will get us laid or something like that, which might be the, more, the earlier view. And then even subsequent to that is the whole notion that the ego itself had its own source of energy, that it wasn't borrowed from the id, and therefore there was energy available to us that was fundamentally not conflictual in nature. Right? So again, there's this moving away from the most extreme and darkest view into something that feels a little bit more um, tolerable to our self-image of being in control. Um, yeah. Yeah, Richard? What's the role of the superego in all? Um, to basically screw us up, you know. Uh, Freud, the, the question is, what's the role of the superego? And it, it was regarded as a kind of a vicissitude of, you know, the Oedipal conflict. And um, Freud's view was that it was um, basically harmful to us because it kind of was an erotic product. Uh, it keeps us in line, yeah, but it was one that it was at some particular cost. And Freud was never confused about morality, which he didn't see as tied up in the superego. Super he understood that there was morality and there's right and wrong, but the superego was a more of a contorted effort to reconcile 
this um, irreconcilable conflict. And so he saw the superego as harming, as harsh and harmful. You know? So, it's pessimistic, more of an excellent diagnostic system than it is a kind of a treatment system. Treatment, in his view, consisted of, as best we could, trying to make the unconscious conscious, right? And finding adequate ways to, um, you know, to replace, again, primitive and dysfunctional defenses with more mature defenses. Um, yeah. So, we have several needs which are incompatible with one another often. One is to seek pleasure and to be free of pain. But satisfaction is known um, only in the contrast to our need states, which can temporarily abate. Um, so how do we cope in this model? Well, you know, Freud identified a few things that we can do to cope. One of them is intoxication. Right? And indeed, Freud had a, had a pretty serious cocaine habit there for a while until he realized it wasn't working well for him. Another was um, isolation, that we can try to remove ourselves from the world. And, 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 and Freud actually thought that a lot of Eastern traditions and Eastern philosophy were about an effort to try to isolate our hungers, to try to kill, our, kill off our hungers, to try to pretend to be dead prematurely so that there's a way of negation of our impulses, <coughs> kill off the hungers and the instincts, which in his view, again, was bound to fail. Um, and then the next is uh, another coping mechanism is that of sublimation, which broadly is um, the way that we find socially acceptable ways to express our impulses. Some satisfactions are available, of course, never permanently. There are satisfactions to be found in work, but not fully. Beauty and art provide some satisfactions, but they're transient. Love and sex However, both expose us to more suffering. What a dark guy. So suffering, in this view, is the evidence of unconscious conflict between competing needs. And that over the course of development, maybe we develop better and better defenses, but very often, for various reasons, there's a developmental arrest, and our ability to cope remains at a kind of an earlier and more primitive developmental level which puts us more in conflict with the social environment. Well, it seems interesting to me, doesn't have background theory, is that this identification, that satisfaction, is not a permanent state. It's a very Absolutely. variable state. Absolutely. Yeah. So here's, let me read in support of what you said. Here's a quote from Civilization and its Discontents. The program of becoming happy. Actually, I have this on a slide. Do you want to see the slide? Oh, here we go. The program of becoming happy, which the pleasure principle imposes on us, cannot be fulfilled. Yet we must not, indeed we cannot give up our efforts to bring it near to fulfillment by some means or other. Right? This is the hedonic treadmill. 
very different paths may be taken in that direction, and we may give priority either to the positive aspect of the aim, that is of gaining pleasure, or to its negative one, that of avoiding unpleasure. But none of these paths can we attain that we des- that all that we desire. Happiness, in the reduced sense in which we recognize it is possible, is a problem of the economics of the individual's libido. Right. So he understood that we were bound to uh, very limited success in this enterprise. And also, in his view, the search for pleasure was dominated by the, the effort to avoid uh, sorrow and, and displeasure. That that's the thing that mostly drove us. Right? And it was bound to failure. So, when we suffer, <clears throat> in this view, <clears throat> our symptoms, for instance, our neurotic preoccupations, are sim- simultaneously regarded as solutions to the problem um, and the problem itself. You know, people are unhappy because they find themselves perpetually repeating some kind of, you know, there's a repetition compulsion. We're repeating some kind of maladaptive behavior. And that's a problem for us, but the problem is, has arisen because it's, uh, it's a, an effort to try to resolve uh, an unconscious conflict. <clears throat> In his view, the road to insight is the proper form of treatment, and that is to say the analysis of a symptom. Treatment is to make us aware of what was formerly outside of awareness. And when the symptom is displaced from its original conflict, it points the way back to... I don't understand what that says. Scratch that. Once we arrive at what appears to be the source, in theory, suffering abates. Why? Maybe because we've explained it, which is theoretically to resolve the problem. And again, I would say it simply provides an account where none existed before. I'm like this because here's what happened in my childhood. For example, the problem, of course, that we found with psychoanalysis is that having an explanation, even a really cogent and plausible one for why we're suffering, doesn't provide uh, liberation from the symptoms. And it was recognized in clinical circles that insight isn't sufficient. Then you've got to do all the hard work around habit change. You know, what are you going to do about it? It may be necessary, but it's not sufficient. Right? The whole view that psychoanalysis by itself could constitute a potential cure Um, I think from a practical perspective was found not to be true. Okay. So, um, I've got a whole bunch of really depressing quotes here. Okay, okay, I'm going to have to interrupt it um, before I get through it all because it's 5 to 12 and I don't want to stand between you and the gratification of your libidinal drives for food. Um, So anyway, this kind of depressed view is is echoed by others. Uh, Here's one from uh, Schopenhauer, philosopher and generally cheery guy. The greatest wisdom is to make the enjoyment of the... This was his, his response... The greatest wisdom is to make the enjoyment of the present the supreme object of life because that is, what, that is the only reality, all else being a play of thought. But we could just as well call it our greatest folly because that which exists only a moment and vanishes as a dream can never be worth a, ser- a serious effort. 
So pursue pleasure, but forget about it working for you. Right? So here again, you know, the simple recognition that all of our pleasures are fleeting and there's nothing permanent to be found. Is this familiar to anybody? Um, so he advocated a kind of renunciation, you know? I mean, it doesn't sound like it, but he, he was really kind of about abnegating uh, pleasure, and he, was, he isolated himself. I think he really tried to be apart from other people and to pretend he had no needs, but in fact, he had an enormous need for his own recognition in his lifetime. And whatever program he laid out for himself, I think, did not, uh, did not work terribly well. Um, so only by isolation from temptations, he suggested, can we hope to put them out of reach? So he said we should be reserved and inaccessible. Schopenhauer suggested that we remain strangers, even to our friends. Not a good dinner guest. (laughs) Honest to God. And abnegation that he was advocating is not the same as eradication. Those needs and those desires don't disappear just because we try to isolate. He wrote of endless wanting and of limited satisfaction only for the least of our desires, which are only then replaced by yet more desires. Um, Schopenhauer drew a lot on the image of Tantalus, right? You know, <clears throat> endlessly. Um, Tantalus, I forgot what his crime was, but his punishment, I hope I have this right. I think Tantalus was the guy who was endlessly thirsty, and he was standing in water. And every time he bent over to drink the water, the water level would drop just to, yeah, do it, yeah? Disappeared, yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So this is kind of our punishment, right? These endless, you know, in the Buddhist lore, um, it's depicted as the realm of the hungry ghosts, who are these beings with enormous bellies and pinhole-sized mouths, you know, who can never find any satisfaction. Um. So he, re- he talked about human life as revolving around an axle of need followed by satiation briefly, followed by boredom, and then motion again. Right? And this is very akin to Freud, who talked about our um, motivation being uh, the alleviation of tissue tension. You know, just, you're tired, you sleep, you're hungry, you eat endlessly. Um, Schopenhauer warned that if there was some magic w- world of constant satisfaction we would pretty much uh, be so bored that we would set to fight one another. (laughs) Yeah. And that boredom is frightening because it allows into our awareness the truth of our existence, our meaninglessness, our insignificance, and our progression toward death. You know? So, you know, it's just interesting then consider that when we meditate, what happens when we stop distracting ourselves? Right? Now, I don't think it inevitably leads to a sense of insignificance and meaninglessness, but it does allow into consciousness all manner of things that we ordinarily prefer not to allow. <clears throat> okay, I'm sorry. One last quote, 
and then I'll free you for lunch. Can we do this one? I don't know, maybe it's this. In the first place, a man is never happy but spends his whole life in striving after something which he thinks will make him so. He seldom attains his goal, and when it does, it's only to be disappointed. He is mostly shipwrecked in the end and comes into the harbor with masts and riggings gone. And then it is all one, and then it is all one whether he has been happy or miserable, for his life was never more than a present moment, always vanishing. And now it is over. Enjoy your lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.